0: Good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 with me? I'm going to read 18 verses of uh, that chapter, and then we'll pray and we'll get started. This is God's Word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, Every year, make perfect those who draw near; otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Will you guys pray with me? Father, it's news, it's like way too good to be true. How can it be true that there's no longer any offering for sin? How can a priest not have to work day after day after day to atone for the sin that I commit day after day after day? How can it be true that your Son sits at your right hand and that His once-for-all sacrifice has satisfied your wrath against every single sin, against every one of your elect people? How can any of that be true? Will you remind us of it this morning, Father? And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen there was a, uh, a book that had, was written, I don't know, a year or so ago by a woman named Melody Warnick. And the name of the book is This Is Where You Belong. And the book deals with a feeling that I think every single one of us in this room can relate to. And it's that simple feeling, it's that simple kind of disappointment that we have with the place that we live, the longing that we want, the the longing that we have that we wish that we were somewhere else, that sense that if we could just have some small tweak in our geography, it would change and shed all the worry and anxiety and disappointment that our lives tend to be so full of. And Warnick's book, really stands as a kind of strong rejoinder to that sort of disposition and posture and truly it's just a it's a self-help book it's a book that insists that the place that you live that you actually live has more to offer than you've considered it uh It critiques like geographical fetishizing, if I can use that term or word. That's what the whole book is intended to do, and it begs you to consider. This new place that God or job or fate or whatever has brought brought you to has something to offer. It admonishes you to get to know your neighbor, to go on longer walks, to ask other people in your neighborhood what they do for fun. And it pleads with you to open your mind and see what the future has for you in this location. Now you guys know why I grabbed that book, right? That is the existential dilemma of every single Colombian. I've heard that a gazillion times. And so when I saw that, I said, i got to have it. Now, I have to admit that I, I started reading the book and I, I spilled coffee I, from the library. I checked it out. I spilled coffee all over it. I don't read soiled books at all. And so I returned it and they have a <laughs> coffee stained book. But I listened to a very thorough podcast about the book, and I think I got the (laughs) gist of it. Columbia has rabid devotees. You know them, right? They have people that you could not persuade otherwise that there's another city better in the entire world. People, for whatever reason, they love this town, and you you couldn't persuade them otherwise. And then you have legions and scores of naysayers, people that think <laughs> thank you wow uh that would that you would think there's no worse place in the world so i've had friends i've had friends that have stayed in Colombia with unbelievably admirable loyal devotion, and i've known friends that have not been able to summon that same loyalty, and have abandoned this famously hot city, right? <laughs> here's, the, here's the reason for that introduction and illustration. I think, I think, that to understand the book of Hebrews, you have to tap in to that very same human longing. You have to have that eagerness to gather local knowledge, To know the man that serves your drinks at the soda fountain, you have to have felt the delight when the produce salesman at the farmer's market recognizes you and knows your name. To understand the book of Hebrews, you have to know all that, but then you have to take it even a step further because we're not really just talking about nutrition, we're talking about something much more fundamental and, I guess, existential. You're talking, you have to be not just attached to those things, you have to be attached to cosmetics and cultures and people that prepare you for you to experience your God. And in Hebrews, that's not just a pastor. In the book of Hebrews, the priest that butchered your cow, not for food, but for holiness, would be from a long line of families that you've known for generations. His father would have butchered your father's cow, and it would have been for your holiness, for the absolution of your sin. His grandfather would have butchered your grandfather's cow, and it would not have been for your food. It would have been for your holiness, for your absolution from your sin. So what happens in Hebrews? There's a number of different ways to look at the interpretation of the context of how this letter came to be, but at least one is, is that this letter was written after the year 70 AD. Now that doesn't, I know, mean much to many of you, but here's what it would mean if you looked it up. In 70 AD, something horrific happened, something of the proportions of which horror, the horror, I don't even know how to say this. It's so bad I can't articulate to you (laughs) in mixed company. In 70 AD, the commander Titus marched into the city of Jerusalem and he laid the temple to waste. Not one stone was left upon another and people were butchered by the dozens and by the hundreds and by the thousands. And there was no Levite anymore. And there was no priest anymore. And there was no holy place anymore. All of the apparatuses that made the Jewish religion vanished, and there was no way for them to be rebuilt. It's a time of deep crisis. What do you do in a time of that kind of religious crisis? What happens in a time of that kind of deep religious crisis? Well, God, of course, knew what he was doing, and he had let the writer to the Hebrews in on what he was doing long before the horror of 70 AD and the letter to the Hebrews was penned. The blood of bulls and goats don't need to be there anymore. The sacrifice doesn't need to be there anymore. All of that stuff, it had its place. And this man that's come, his name is Jesus, and he came from Galilee, he came from Nazareth, and he comes from the line of Melchizedek. And guess what? His once and for all offering is going to satisfy the sins of the many. If that small, just that it's not small at all, if that change, if that moment of setting... This movement into a tumultuous decade can shape the elements of the letter, of this letter. What does that say about God? What does that say about Jesus? And what does that say about the Spirit? Those are things that are stable. The writer to the Hebrews, if you you take my context about 70 A.D., think about how it sounds when the writer to the Hebrews says in just a few chapters, You know what? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, the same today, and forever. He's that stable. He's that stable. Titus can do what Titus can do to the temple, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it's actually our God that's a consuming fire. So, here's what I'm saying, and I just want to make three quick points about each member of the Trinity. And I just want you to understand The argument that I'm making, I'm making the argument that the letter to the Hebrews was written after there was no temple. And so, my fundamental thesis is that the writing of the Hebrews is intended to draw the affections, draw the hearts of the people away from the trappings of the Jewish religion and towards the worship of Jesus. It's to draw His people back into allegiance to the church and finally, towards full and, uh, and total connection and union um, with their Creator. Now, here's what I know. I know you have... I mean, and if, if there's somebody of whom this is true, please come tell me. Chances are, I think I know, that none of you have slaughtered a bull or a goat to appease your sins. I, I'm pretty sure you haven't made an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, But what I know without a shadow of a a doubt, I know it because it's true for me, is that your guilt and your shame over sin, it doesn't always seem to go away. There's something inside you, deep down, maybe you didn't do it to yourself. Maybe it's a result of where you're from. Maybe it's a result of something unfortunate that's happened to you. Maybe tragedy has beset your life over and over and over again, and you're looking for freedom I just, want you to, I just want you to hear me clearly here. I want to give you the heart and soul of the book of Hebrews, this chapter, and just say, the life of the Trinity, all it wants to tell you is that this is where you belong. You belong right here. fellowshipping in the midst of those three people and finding that peace. So here's God. So let's talk about God the Father briefly. The work of God in history is complicated. You guys know that. You look out at the world and you wonder what on earth is God doing. And you're not the first generation that's wondered that. And you look at the work of God in the Bible and you say, this feels kind of complicated too. There's never easy correspondence between the Old Testament, the way that God acts in the Old Testament, and the way that God acts in the New and so we begin to understand little bit by little bit as we read our Bible that the providence of God isn't mechanical. It's not easy to predict. It kind of comes like a thief in the night. Um, and it comes for really one purpose. And that's just for God to display His own glory. Now, I, um, I, the, there's a, a phrase that comes up in Presbyterian circles that you'll hear from time to time. It's a it's a doctrinal identifier, and you can say I'm a five-point Calvinist, right? Maybe some of you have heard that. I'm not going to tell you what that got. You guys can Google that later. But I am going to tell you that I actually am a six-point Calvinist. Now, there are very devout people out there that are seven-point Calvinists, and you should stay away from them. But <laughs> I am a six, and so I'm safe. I'm totally safe. But... A six-point Calvinist, by my understanding, the six-point I do want to tell you about, because I think it's actually maybe the most beautiful point that's ever been made in Reformed theology. A six-point Calvinist is someone that believes that this is the best of all possible worlds, which means that God governs the course of history so that, in the long run, His glory will be more fully displayed And his people more fully satisfied than would have been the case in any other world. Now, if we look at the way things are now in the present era of this fallen world, this is of course not the best of all possible worlds. But if we look at the whole of the course of history, from creation to redemption to eternity and beyond, and see the entirety of God's plan... It is the best of all possible plans, and it leads to the best of all possible eternities. And therefore, this universe and all that happens in it from creation to eternity, taken as a whole, is the best of all possible worlds. The New Testament is going to give you hints of the significance of the sacrificial system. You're going to see it all over the place. You're going to see it outline parallels between itself and the death of Christ. You're going to learn about the law in Romans chapter 7. It's going to tell you that the law came in so that you could understand what sin was. If you read the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians is going to tell you that the law acted like a schoolmaster until Christ came. But Hebrews shows you a deeper magic. And it's a magic that was written from before the dawn of time. And it's going to say this. Sin and the law and the sacrifices and blood and bulls and goats are only a clouded drape covering the tapestry of redemptive history. And when the earth shook... And trembled at the death of Christ, that cloudy covering fell and revealed a God so infinitely wise, so totally omnipotent, so fully gracious and just that He was willing to write His Son's death into the tragic comedy that is human history. Now, Jesus... Uh, there's David, and this is like kind of an ongoing joke that David and I have. And actually my dad's a pastor too and he gets to, we joke about this together some too. There are, it is very nerve wracking to stand in front of people and speak to them. You guys all understand that, right? It, it may, you get nervous and it's, You know, it's like one of the people's greatest fears, you read that sometimes. Nothing is worse in a worship service than when there's an element added that isn't usually there. That throws everything into disarray and the nerves of whoever's administering it goes into hyperspeed and it, it gets crazy, okay? A baptism, especially an infant baptism, is the worst of them all. they There is nothing worse than that. I did this two weeks ago to a little girl... And it it just, I I don't mind giving a charge to a family. I don't mind reading things. But when you have to have a Bible in one hand and a piece of paper from the book of church order in the other hand, and a wooden font full of water in the other hand, and then somebody wants to pass you their most precious possession, and you have to hold it and orchestrate all these things, and it's very nerve-wracking and terrifying. And so a couple weeks ago I had one and somehow the girl's arm got locked into my armpit and twisted a little bit and I knew her rotator cuff was never going to be the same. Her labrum was messed up, you know. So it's a nerve-wracking thing. But that... But that doesn't come anywhere near what the best of them all were. And this is this is good. Not that's just that story's just funny. This story's sweet, very sweet, and then only kind of funny. So um, you remember um, a couple years ago, David Gentino baptized Brucey e. Snell. And I don't know how many of you know who Brucey e. Snell is, but that's the son of. Mills and Stephanie Snell and Brucey was named after her late grandfather, Mills's dad Bruce. And David um gave an unbelievable charge to Mills and Stephanie. And one of the sweetest parts of it was is that a man after Mills's father died a man gave a verse to Mills from Psalm chapter 61, and it said this, God has answered my vows. He's given me a heritage of those that fear his name. And it was spellbinding, and it was moving. And I cried and watched David baptize Brucey. And I, for my whole life, I'll never forget that moment, because it told me and reminded me that God is good. He takes things away, but he gives them back, and he is a God that gives a heritage to people that fear his name. But but it got to the point, the simplest point in the baptism, where all David had to do was put water on Brucey's head and say, "'I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.'" And I think David got caught up. He had gathered such momentum with Psalm 61 that he left out the Son. <laughs> he baptized Brucey in the name of the Father and the Spirit. And then there was this ellipsis a mile long, and he said, and the Son, and the Son. <laughs> and during that ellipsis, I thought, this thing's null and void. <laughs> and and if if... <laughs> The point is, I just want to say, we're talking about the Trinity this morning, and the point is, I just want to say one thing about Jesus. Hebrews is rife with Him. But if you read Hebrews chapter 10, there's one thing that stands out, and it makes Him different than every other being than you're ever, 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 ever going to know. Look at verse 12 of um, of our passage. Every other priest, he stands. He always stands. And you know why He stands? Because you can't offer enough sacrifices of bulls and goats to cover the sins of all of you. You just can't. Priests never sit down. They never, ever, ever get to sit down. But look again at verse 12 and what Jesus does. He sits. He sits at the right hand of His Father and you... You're going, and me are going to stand and work and worry and fight and carry on until you finally sit with Jesus. The things that make our nerves tremble, the things that make our skin crawl, the guilt and the shame that make our hearts murmur, each of those things Jesus sits through. We don't know much of anything about where precisely Jesus is right now except to insist, like we do every single week in the apostles creed that he sits at the right hand of the father. And what does the holy spirit do at the very end? I've said just two thing we've said just two things about the trinity, right? We've said that God is in control of this world and he's orchestrated salvation history in such a way as to display the glory of his son. The second thing we've said from Hebrews 10 is that Jesus has forgiven your sins. Once and for all, you're not putting him in a position of perpetual labor, even though you feel like you are. He sits. And finally, that is what you are, what you are doing to yourself through your confusion and anxiety and guilt, you're not doing to Jesus. And here's what the Holy Spirit's doing to you. He's just pleading with you to trust those things. He's putting God's law on your mind and on your heart. He's telling you God doesn't remember your sins and your lawless deeds. He's long forgotten. And so will you come back to Him? Will you come home to Him and find that He's where you belong? Will you believe, again, that this is precisely where you belong? Not this church, for heaven's sake, but the body of Christ. And nowhere else and nowhere else, has He given you reason to believe that other than that, that this is where you belong. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your love. We pray that You would continue to be gracious to us. Will You remind us that this is where we belong? It doesn't matter where we are. You've made us a cosmopolitan people, a people that can find rest for our weary souls. Here, wherever. But we need Your Spirit, and so we ask that You would send Him, that He would fall on us and that He would give us hearts and minds that have Your law written on them. And we pray that You would just remind us that our sins are forgiven. We love You. In Your name we pray. Amen.